The following is a pre-recorded program. Excuse the voice, 906. Why does it always happen when I first start? It's Monday night, that's why. I haven't been talking all weekend. Good evening, Tom Kearney here. This is the Tom Kearney Show. We're here every night, Monday through Friday, from 9 until 10, with a little bit of live and in real-time radio, and we try to bring you things that uh, we believe and hope edify and entertain. Uh, the gentleman who's here tonight is fairly entertaining. In fact, he's more than fairly. He, but he also is pretty good at edifying, too. Uh, he's been visiting us for at least the last 10 years. The first time we invited him, in fact, is when Pluto got demoted. That's, That's how right. I can note that. His name is Stephen Reynolds, and he's a professor at North Carolina State University. One of the things we like to do on this program and on this station is to have our own folks. We don't need to go to uh, the observatory on Mount Wilson or somewhere. We've got our own guy right here. Steve Reynolds has been at NC State uh, since... In, in the 80s? 85. Is that right? 85. He was educated, I think I'll get it right, first in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and then in Berkeley, California. That's right. And you can fill in the universities if you're right. <laughs> actually at Harvard and at, at, at Berkeley. And, uh, you know, one of the great books, this is an aside, but I love book titles, is uh, a, a book by a man about who wrote about Caltech. And the people there, uh, Dennis Overby, I don't know mm -hmm. if you're familiar with this. He, sure, I know him. And uh, Lonely Hearts of the Universe. Right. I was just <laughs> guessing that was going to be That's a time. great book title. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want to you buy it and read it just because. <laughs> and it's a good book, too. But you, you want to buy it and read it just because of the, of the title. But uh, when uh, Dr. Reynolds comes, we could talk about a lot of things. He is an accomplished musician and I'm sure has other talents that we haven't even discovered yet. But he really is our resident astronomer. And uh, that was why he came to talk to us about Pluto being demoted. And we've talked about a lot of things. In fact, three years ago, we were talking about this as we got off the elevator. Uh, was one of the few times we had uh, what amounted to an astronomical news flash, you know, breaking news, breaking news. Right. Because that I believe that day or the day before, they had just uh, announced uh, that they had discovered... Uh, through instrumentation. Actually, I think they had noted it about three, four or five months before, but they spent a lot of time checking it out to make sure it was right. Uh, gravitational waves, which was the last thing on the list, I think, to uh, uh, prove some of the things that Albert Einstein had stood for. Yeah, that was certainly one of the, uh, the, the most dramatic predictions that he'd made. But uh, we keep uh, confirming his theory. This is getting to be an embarrassment for physics because uh, <laughs> the, the Einstein's theory of, of gravity is what they call a classical theory. It doesn't have any uncertainty in it. It doesn't have any chance. It doesn't have any things that are part of quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics works incredibly well. And it's somehow it's just fundamentally on a different planet, you might say, than general relativity, but both of them are fantastically accurate in their own sphere. So string theory was invented as a kind of big tent to bring them together. It, it brought too much together. It, it, it explains nothing because it explains everything. But uh, um, so, so 
the various corrections that people would guess would have to start cutting into Einstein, they just, it, we haven't seen it. So it's not only that we saw the gravitational waves, but uh, uh, by the way, that was probably, that was the best evidence that black holes exist. Well, astronomers have believed in them for 30, 40 years, and we think it's very strong evidence, but this is absolutely lead pipe cinch confirmation on the existence of black holes at all. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Einstein keeps uh, keeps being right. <clears throat> well, as I said to you uh, again as we were coming into the building, that Einstein's really been hot of late, and this was one of the things. And, and I'm, I'm going to offer a, a man on the street's interpretation of what you were just talking about, uh, or what I introduced, and that is, the, the wrinkle in, in space-time that had come across the universe, and check me out if I'm right about this, there was a gigantic explosion somewhere out there that created this wave. Uh, what it was, the very first one was the merging of two black holes. Okay, that's... They're, they're spiraling in, they get closer and closer together, and so there's a very precise signal that is predicted by this that I'd been seeing people show in talks for years and years, and I thought, yeah, they're never going to build an instrument that's sensitive enough to detect that. I mean, the, the amount of ripple in space-time you're talking about is an incredibly tiny fraction of the smallest actual thing we know of a proton. How can they possibly measure it? Uh, well, the, the, the prediction is so precise. As these two black holes get closer and closer together, it speeds up, and then they merge, and there's a kind of a burst, and then it, then it dies down. And exactly that was what was seen. It was a great moment because I was watching the press conference like everybody mm -hmm. else who wasn't involved. And, uh, and just seeing these things on the screen, it was an incredible thrill. There are, as I remember at the time you and I talked about it, which was three years ago, uh, there was a, uh, a station, a listening, I'm going to call it a listening station in Louisiana uh, in a remote area and one in, in uh, Washington. That's right. And uh, they were, I remember they were building one, maybe there was one in Japan then, and they were building one in Italy, I think, at that time. Right. The one, the one in Italy is now online also. The other two are called LIGO, Laser Interferometer Gravitational Observatory. Uh, Virgo stands for something too, but it's the one in Italy, which is also now online. And uh, one of the most so, – so, so after this incredible discovery, it turns out these things are kind of routine. Well, you sort of knew they had to be because they had just barely turned on the machine before they got the first one. Right. So, so they can't be that rare. And sure enough, every few weeks now, they get another – so merging black holes are kind of commonplace now. But what was not commonplace – so, so black hole, the trouble is, that's just gravity. The only thing you're going to detect from them is that tiny ripple in space-time, and that's it. And you can learn a bunch from that. Just from that signal, you can learn the distance, for instance, which isn't true of light. But uh, the, it was also thought, in fact, LIGO was built because they expected to see something else much more frequently. And that was two neutron stars merging. Now, neutron stars are still stuff. They're not like points of infinite gravity like black holes. Uh, and so if they merge, you will get a gravitational wave signal. It will be different in character, similar, uh, similar uh, qualitatively, but, but quantitatively different. It takes longer for them to spiral in. But because that's stuff, that can emit light and its, and its uh, relatives like radio waves and x-rays. And one of those was seen within the last year. And that was, has just been a huge because people picked up. So the, the, the detectors, the gravitational wave detectors, including this one in Italy, chimed in to, to, to say, ah, there's been a signal in this part of the sky. Uh, less than one second later, an orbiting satellite that's sensitive to gamma rays, electromagnetic waves, uh, picked up a gamma ray burst. Um, the, everybody uh, who had access to this, this information used the uh, 
the, the not very precise location given by those two things to swing optical telescopes around. And within half an hour, they'd found a galaxy with a rapidly fading optical signal. So that was everything. It was the whole ball of wax. You got the gravitational wave trigger. You got the gamma ray burst. You got, it's still observed in radio and x-rays now. Um, and uh, one of the, so it turns out this is completely turned over since I was a graduate student. Um, the question is, you know, the Big Bang makes hydrogen and helium. Where did everything else came from, come from? And the answer is ultimately stars. Uh, and I thought that in particular, the few very massive stars that blow up, supernovae, which is sort of my own field of research, that that was where you made a lot of things. It's still, we believe, where you make most of the iron in the universe. But this extremely exotic, I thought, process of merging neutron stars now seems to be where you make a lot of other stuff. And this observation seems to show that. Wait a minute, and, and this is partly tongue-in-cheek, uh, but you've just told me that the technology— working at this radio station is one of the, the real things that's gotten me is that in the 37 years I've been here, the technology has changed three or four times. Absolutely. Well, you've just described something that I thought I understood because it had, had it's something I had learned. And as I was telling you, I, I thought that the iron and stuff just appeared, and you're telling me the stars created it. And, and I'm I'm shortcutting this. I may distort it slightly, but now we're, we're how this actually happens is one stage further along. That's right. And yeah, so it's so so normal stars. The sun is going to make some, uh, so turn some helium into carbon, and <laughs> part of that, some a little bit of that is going to be ejected into space and can go to make future planets and astronomers and things. Um, some stars will explode, and those, to make the heavier elements, the elements heavier than iron, the question is, how, how do you get there? You get up to iron with supernova explosions. They make a lot of iron and a little bit of other stuff. But there was really problems in detail getting, seeing how supernovae might make things like gold and silver. Well, it looks like it's turning out that most of the gold and silver in the universe come from merging neutron stars. So ultimately, it is stars, but these are freakish stars under an extremely peculiar circumstance that, that, that spiraled together, and now it, it seems like in a blast of light, because we've seen it once, uh, and with a blast of gravitational waves, uh, come together and produce some stuff that uh, goes out and to make future stars. As Dr. Reynolds observed, there's still a lot of work to do. There's Astronomers will be employed. That's right. <laughs> we need to stop and take a break. I think the next place we're going to go, we've got two other things I particularly want uh, Dr. Reynolds to talk about tonight. Uh, and we will tell you the telephone number. So if when he's talking about this thing that he just talked about or something else that he talks about, we want to stay on the subject. We don't want to wander off of that. Uh, you can you can give us a call if that suits you. 919-860-9783. 919-860-WPTF, if you will, if you have letters on your telephone. The other two things, since we the subject of black holes has already come up, maybe we'll... There was a picture in April, about April 18th or 19th. Right. It's supposed to be the first picture ever taken of a black hole. I think I got that right. Yep. And Need some explaining, but yeah, that's basically what well, that's 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 Well, that's your next job, a right. homework assignment. And then uh, this year, there's a lot of anniversaries in the year that begins with 19. That's right. For instance, the Treaty of Versailles and stuff like that. And first one thing and another, Walt Whitman's birthday was a, a couple of weeks ago. But in the last week of May in 1919, uh, an experiment took place that took some staging that actually made Albert Einstein famous. He had already done uh, most of the work that he did that made him famous, would make him famous, 
But after about after this experiment took place and was successful, he was as well known as Charlie Chaplin. That made him a public figure. Made him right. a public figure, and for the rest of his life, if you if you thought of somebody who was really smart, you would say he was an Einstein, right. and that goes on even today, as a matter of fact. But it had to do with an experiment uh, that took place uh, having to do with an eclipse of the of the of the sun, and we're going. I'm going to ask Dr. Reynolds if he will talk about that. That's always been one of my favorite things. And I've already learned a couple of things about it tonight, just, again, walking in. It's a lot of fun to walk in with Dr. Reynolds. We, we, we cover some of the material. We'll be back to talk about black holes in a moment. WPTF. It's Astronomy Night. Our schedule is in on our website every Monday morning. You can see what's going to happen for Monday and the rest of the week. And it said that tonight Dr. Stephen Reynolds of the, the Physics Department at NC State would talk about things astronomical. And indeed he is. Uh, I, I needed to be filled in. I, it's sort of one of my hobbies. And I I thought, well, I can, he'll come and, and be on the radio with me, and we'll share it with everybody else, too. And they, right. we'll broadcast it, I think is what they would say. Um, you, in, in earlier, you, Dr. Reynolds, you were talking about black holes. And as I said just before we went to the break, in the newspaper uh, or somewhere I saw online that the first picture of a black hole, they, they posited the existence of black holes, but this is the first picture, I think, of, that had been taken. It was a picture construct. It's an image, actually, rather right. than a picture, I think would be. Can you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, for sure. So um, uh, so astronomers have believed that there were black holes uh, for, for decades now. They're, the first pretty solid evidence was... Uh, was X-rays um, from certain kinds of astronomical objects? A star orbiting something else produced X-rays, and and we deduced that there was a black hole. The trouble is, black holes are very very dense. So you can make the sun into a black hole. All you have to do is squeeze it down so it's only a mile across. So that means that it's so if a normal star has to be that small to become a black hole, uh, it's going to be really hard to image them. So you could so one of these X-ray even with very good uh, X-ray telescopes, you can see this X-ray source, and you know there's a black hole in the middle of it, but the, tele the, the image is just too blurry. You're, you're just not going to be able to, to see. So what, what, what would be, you can't see the hole itself. What does it mean to see one? It, it sort of means to see the gap. The reason we see uh, X-rays from black holes is because of the gas from a companion star that swirls in and gets so hot that it shines for us. Uh, before disappearing in into the black hole. So you're not seeing the hole. What, what, what it means to see the hole is to have such an incredibly sharp vision that you can see the gap, that you can see this material that's making the, the, the light or radio waves or x-rays you can see, but you can see that there's a dark spot in it. You're seeing it indirectly then, aren't that's you? That's right. right. I mean, it's just like being able to tell that there's a, there's a, that it, that it's a needle and not just a pin because it's got a little tiny hole in it, right? If you're mm -hmm. too far away, you can't tell that. You get up close and you see, ah, there's a hole in there. So that, in fact, is what, what we're seeing. The radio image of the uh, 
black hole at the center of our galaxy was very hot gas um, and it's on its last gas before disappearing. And they had such a sharp vision that they actually could tell that there was a gap in the middle. And there's some other cool stuff, too, which is a little more technical. The gravity there is so strong that the light that you get gets kind of all bent and warped on the way to us. But we understand how it works. I mean, Einstein's theories have predicted accurately so well uh, many other things. We believe our calculations. So it's brighter on one side than the other, and that's because the uh, um, that's on the side uh, where the gravity boosts the uh, light toward us instead of making it dimmer. But you actually can see the gap there. So the instrument is actually called the Event Horizon Telescope. Because while a black hole doesn't have any size, it does have a point of no return. So when I say it that, has an edge. It has, yeah, it's yeah. a kind of a, right, the, the curtain uh, right. that hides the uh, uh, whatever is inside. Um, and so the, the Event Horizon Telescope was able not just to show that there was a a radio source at the center of our galaxy. That's been known since 1974. In fact, mm -hmm. I wrote my first paper on it. Um, but to tell that in the very center of that, have such sharp vision that you could see the little dark spot. And you answered one of the questions that I was going to ask you as, as my own caller. Uh, and that is, there, there really is a hole. It isn't just black uh, something. Uh, it's uh, without it's, a name. It, there really is a hole there that sucks things in and they disappear. In fact, hasn't it been posited that it may go in and come out somewhere else? Uh, there, technically, you can. The mathematics of general relativity is a lot of fun. A lot of mathematicians have been playing with it for decades. Uh, and there formally is a solution where you can join the throat of a black hole to something in another universe. Um, these are probably not stable and they're unlikely to exist in, uh, outside of science fiction. I mean, they're actually mm -hmm. a great science fiction device. But in fact, there are a number of problems with them in reality. First thing is, on your way into the hole, uh, the hole is going to pull on your feet so much stronger than on your head that you'll be spaghettified, I think is the technical term. Um, so you, even if you could come out the other side, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be squished. You'd be pixels, is yeah. what you'd be. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that probably doesn't, doesn't happen. But, yeah, there is. Stuff disappears in it, and the hole grows. It's, it's mm -hmm. The one thing it has is gravity. Uh, and uh, now we can't, we can't detect the, the growth of the black hole. In fact, the one at the center of our galaxy is remarkably quiet. It's growing about one millionth the, as fast as it could. Uh, we see uh, giant black holes at the center of other galaxies. That is, we detect them, and they're fantastically bright. They're called quasars. Uh, and those are feeding at about, about the highest rate they, that they could. They're eating as fast as they can. But our galaxy, for some reason we don't completely understand, uh, is, uh, is a very picky eater. Now, if anything that comes anywhere near it is swallowed up, but does anything come out of it anywhere? I mean, nope. 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 Maybe it's just, that's the end of it. <clears throat> but the, the, the point is that, that the gas going in makes a lot of noise on the way in. Okay. And so there are various ways that you, can, that you know that's, that's happening. And can that's, we listen to that noise? Uh, well, I was thinking noise metaphorically, but in fact, uh, you probably could. Uh, it's just going to be his. I'm, right, I regret okay. to say. Well, you were talking earlier tonight, though, about uh, pulsars and, and pulsing uh, at, at a different rate as, as uh, affected by gravity. And I didn't know if this this could, whatever, I don't know, cataclysm of, of the black hole would, would be generating any signals. Because I, it seems like to me that a good bit of the astronomy that's taken place for the last uh, 75 years has been radio astronomy as much as anything rather than... That was the first big one outside optical. By now, it's, well, it's having a renaissance. It went through a period where the, the 
best, most exciting instruments were things like X-ray telescopes and the Hubble Space Telescope and things. But it's having a real rebirth. Uh, there's an instrument in Chile called the ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, and it is actually imaging protoplanetary disks in other, around other stars where you can see planets forming. It's a spectacular instrument. Maybe we can come back to that, but we do need to pause and find out about the news and what's going on in the world. And when we come back, we'll talk about something that happened in 1919. The following is a pre-recorded program. I'm Kearney here. Tomorrow night, we are going to have a a repeat visit with uh, Cheryl and Bruce Roberts, and they're going to talk about the lighthouses along the North Carolina coast. And it's time to go to the beach. And one of the things you can do if you're down there for a couple of weeks and you've read all your books and gotten kind of bored is go out and look at the lighthouse because we have quite a collection of them between Cape Fear and Currituck and the and the Roberts's. Uh, have a new book about that, and we're going to talk with them tomorrow night. Dr. Edward Funkhauser is going to be here for uh, his uh, necrology update on uh, Wednesday night, and uh, Thursday night will be the eve of the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, June 28th, and which is Friday night, and we always have trivia on Friday night, so we're going to have Dr. Joe Cadell's program uh, tracing the what he what a a scholar has called the long fuse because that that war had been waiting to be to happen and so we have some good programs this week and you will acquire some knowledge along the way including tonight with Dr Stephen Reynolds who is professor of us. Physics, actually, and uh, his area is astronomy. Right. Is that, did I get that right? That's perfect. And um, well, I have been planning to invite him for the next issue that I want him to talk about all along. And these other things have just been frosting on the cake. But uh, 100 years, 100 year anniversary of an experiment. Well, I, Albert Einstein had written up a lot of things, so particularly in 1905 and then between 1905 and 1915, and then the general theory of relativity had been published in 1915. And its acceptance, I think, had been slowed down a little bit because the war was going on. It was, it was a lot hard to transfer knowledge and and things like that. Right. But uh, a couple of British astronomers organized an effort to to conduct an experiment to see if, if what he said was true was going to be true. Arthur Eddington was one of them, and I think the other one's name was Frederick Dyson or something like that. But anyway, that's where you come in. Right. So, uh, so the, uh, the general theory of relativity was, was very mathematically dense. It's kind of an interesting process, a subject of a whole other show, but the 1905 paper on special relativity uses no math beyond high school algebra. It's amazingly lucid, um, but it turned out in order to generalize that to be able to talk about uh, not just things moving very fast, but actually accelerating. Accelerations is what makes general relativity general. Special relativity is just things moving at constant speed with respect to each other. So you think, oh, I mean, how hard can that be? Well, it wound up going way off the deep end mathematically. So suddenly it was incredibly arcane stuff uh, and really did not make much of a ripple. And there was a famous uh, mathematician, David Hilbert, who was actually in a race with Einstein to, to get, this, uh, get this theory. But very few people were paying attention. But it made a startling prediction 
Um, actually, it was not widely known at this time, but um, even Newton's law of gravity predicted that gravitation should have an effect on light. Einstein's theory predicted that it should, uh, but that it was two times, it was different by a factor of two from Newton. So, so Eddington, who was a theorist, um, Really, he's one of the few people who had read and understood. You know the theory. joke about this, don't you? Yeah, that's yeah, right. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll tell, I'll tell okay, the joke. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, so some reporter uh, said, oh, gee, uh, Professor Eddington, I hear that there's only uh, three people who understand this theory, Einstein's theory. And, and uh, Eddington thought for a minute. And uh, uh, the um, reporter said something like, uh, oh, you, that's uh, – what's, what's – uh, uh, what are you thinking of? And he said, well, I'm just trying to think who the third is. Yeah, uh, Einstein uh, and Eddington, and who, yeah, who right, is the right. other one? <laughs> um, but uh, uh, the, the idea was that the way to test this prediction is you need to have light go by a really massive object, really massive. Well, the closest really massive object we know of is our sun. Now, trouble is, how can, so how do you tell if the sun is bending light? Well, you take a picture of the sky when the sun's not there. Uh, and then you take a picture of the sky when the sun is there and see if the stars are uh, in the same place or not. Well, that's, that, there's one serious problem with this. The sun is really bright. Uh, so this is hopeless unless you had some mechanism that, just for your convenience, blotted out all the light from the sun so that you could see the positions of the stars nearby. Well, that's exactly what an eclipse is. So when an eclipse comes along... You, you take the advantage of making the most precise possible photograph, uh, you have a, just a few minutes to do it, of, of the positions of stars nearby. Then you wait six months so that, that, that those stars are now up at midnight when the sun's on the other side of the earth, and you can measure, take another picture, and compare them and see if those positions are slightly different. So that's the experiment they did. Uh, eclipses don't happen very often, and they happen in really inconvenient places. Uh, so they had to, the Eddington expedition went to Africa to do this, and they had all sorts of problems that are associated with that. Uh, there were other attempts to use that same eclipse that uh, went to naught. Um, but uh, short story is that they managed to get their image. They managed to do the measurement. Uh, they managed to confirm Einstein's prediction, and that suddenly made him a public figure. So mm -hmm. uh, the New York Times had a front page story. So Einstein turned out to really love publicity. Um, he, he, he got quoted everywhere. People would follow after him, uh, groupies. Uh, he, was, uh, he was a public figure for the rest of his life. Well, he and I, he and, uh, I mentioned, uh, um, oh, the comic. Uh, uh, Ooh. The, the, the little... Uh, the the American comic the, he was a British comic I'm I'm just losing my my he's the guy that uh, 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 was the most popular comic in the world not Stan Laurel but the oh oh Charlie Chaplin Charlie Chaplin yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I just drew a complete blank I could see him pulling his pants up and he's got he's a, you know he's a got tramp. the big flappy yeah. shoes on and everything yeah. but anyway uh, Chaplin was probably the best known person in the world because people loved his movies. And uh, the two of them went on a kind of a tour for three or four cities, and, and they were about equally popular. And you, you almost said the right word. They had both had groupies, and, and people just—and Einstein, uh, it turns out, had a great personality. Uh, yeah. And uh, there were people ready to propose him to be the, the leader of, of Israel and, and, uh, and the Zionist movement and all those kinds of things. And he had not come to—he's still 10 or 15 years away from coming to the United States. Right, he's, right. He, he has not had the publicity that goes with 
with uh, bad publicity, as it turns out, but of having to escape Nazi Germany yeah, at yeah, this that, point. Yeah, no, he was a, he was a, had rock star status. Uh, mm-hmm. There was no question. Yeah, he really ate it up. The, the thing that's kind of I don't know, ironic or just peculiar, is that that uh, uh, the theory of general relativity was his, his last unalloyed triumph, mm-hmm. um, and it sort of led him astray in a way. He never could accept the uh, the intrinsic indeterminacy of quantum mechanics. A uh, famous quote was, God does not play dice uh, with the universe. And uh, Niels Bohr said, Einstein, stop telling God what to do. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it's, quantum mechanics is incredibly successful. So he, had, he just spent the rest of his life at different uh, uh, attempts to uh, make a classical theory of, uh, of atoms and molecules. Never worked out. Well, don't we have, let me see, I'm going to again pretend to be the man on the street. One thing, Einstein's stuff, to a great extent, following Newton and including Newton, explains the big stuff. Uh, and, yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. And Bohr and, and uh, Heisenberg and all those other people, Schrodinger, uh, explain the small stuff. But what they spent a lot of time and still are spending time trying to get a theory that, that brings it all together. And there's a lot more... Uh, what shall I say, slippage in the world of quantum yeah, yeah. mechanics. <laughs> That's the spooky stuff that Einstein used to talk about. That's right. And in fact, it's it's even worse than that in a way because one of the most fundamental things in all of science is time, right? And it's, mm-hmm. things happen in time. The nature of time is completely different in quantum mechanics and in general relativity. Quant- time is 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 malleable in general relativity. It goes faster or slower depending on where you are. Um, in quantum mechanics, time is a wall clock. You're doing your experiment and the time is outside and it's just ticking away regular-like. Uh, so the, these two co- fundamentally different conceptions are at the root of why these two theories just cannot seem to get together. Okay. Well, and lest anyone say, well, okay, these two guys are on there and one of them knows what he's talking about and the other guy's the radio guy, that's me. Uh, but uh, what difference does it make? Well, I'm, I'm led to believe that an awful lot of the technology, the, the devices we use today, depends on the knowledge that it is gained through the, the, this kind of stuff. You know, what what is going on out there with satellites and GPS and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, that's right. Well, GPS uses both special and general relativity. Without those theories, it would not be accurate enough. The, the signals that, that go up to the satellite in orbit to tell you where you are, uh, climb out of the Earth's gravity, and they get a little weaker in the process. Mm-hmm. According to general relativistic ideas, they encounter a satellite that's moving at high speed, which means you have to take special relativity into account. You don't do those things. You don't know where you are. So it works every day. But even so, so even if you think the ideas of the theories are, are not of immediate interest, the technology to measure them uh, is that's uh, had to be developed is enormously powerful. So the, the LIGO detectors that saw those tiny ripples in space-time are some of the most sensitive engineering devices ever built. It's absolutely fantastic. People have had to learn. That thing, by the way, is the world's greatest seismograph because mm-hmm. any tiny shiver that the Earth has has to be recorded and you try to get rid of it. So these giant masses are, are suspended in ways so that there dozens or maybe hundreds of patents have come out of these things, which are useful in all sorts of areas. So just trying to make, do, invent the, the machine that can measure them turns out to have enormous ancillary benefits. I know. I read that it's one of the man of the street descriptions of the construction of the one in Louisiana. And I mean, they'd sort of like to keep cars out of the state of Louisiana, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> because any, any unsteady thing causes, it would be de- detected as a ripple by these things. And yeah, they, that's why they got to have two of them. And they, got, they also have to know what the signal looks like. Right. It's a little bit of a problem. You know, if there had been, 
if, if there had been something we fundamentally didn't understand about black holes so that the kind of signal was not what we expected, we might not have been able to find it. Because they have to, not only do the two instruments have to burp at around the same time, but the burps have to exactly follow one of these patterns. Right, right. And, or, and if it only appeared on one of the, the instruments, then it might have been somebody stamping their foot or something That's like right. that. I mean, just something. Or just, just, just walking up near the mass. The gravity that an experimenter exerts on one of those test masses is millions of times greater than the effect and it's just, it's just because it's the, the quivering that you measure, that you know exactly how it's supposed to quiver, that allows you to pull that needle out of the haystack. And that ripple had been traveling for 14 billion years That's or right. something like that. Well, right. you, you can believe it then. Dr. Stephen Reynolds, our astronomer, is helping us understand both the present state of some of the technology having to do with black holes and uh, uh, gravitational waves and how— how much Albert Einstein had it right. Uh, he died back in 1955, by the way. Yeah. So he's been dead uh, 65, 70 years now. But he's still being proven right. And uh, we also celebrated uh, the anniversary uh, from 1919 of uh, one of the experiments that proved that the theory of general relativity was, was in fact, right. Now, we, uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, will you bring us to the president and talk about... Uh, the uh, person from NC State, the lady who is I taking will. the ride in space. I'll do that. She's one of your students at some time. Former student, that's right. Yes, okay. We'll be back with Dr. Stephen Reynolds right after this. Tom Curry, along with Dr. Stephen Reynolds, we've had a good night talking about things astronomical, and we're going to come in a little closer to Earth here, but uh, uh, but some ways a little closer to home. One night I was listening to the news on TV, and they were talking about a young lady from NC State who was part of the, uh, I guess you would call them astronauts, I, I yeah, guess she's still, an astronaut, an astronaut yep. and uh, the things that astronauts are doing now are, are dealing with the international uh, uh, space station kind of thing and right. spending time there. And uh, I think her name was Cook that they mentioned. But the name I noticed was Dr. Stephen Reynolds was on TV talking about this young lady, one of his ex-students. So I thought we'd ask him to talk a little bit about her now and what, how she got here and what she's, what she's doing now that you know about. Yeah, so she's, she's a, a flight technician on the International Space Station. Not too long ago, her six-month, original six-month stay was prolonged to a year. I presume this is with her approval. Um, but uh, I knew her as an undergraduate at NC State. She was incredibly energetic young lady and active and double majored in physics and electrical engineering. So I was her academic advisor, which turned out to be a problem. She led me a merry chase through weird uh, – she, she – uh, finished her electrical engineering degree and then decided to get into the master's program in electrical engineering while she was still an undergraduate physics major. Uh, so this caused their heads to explode over in administration, and I had to run around and run Bureaucrats have trouble with things like that. Yeah, she was, she was always unusual. Um, but uh, she did some research in the Astro Group uh, at NC State and worked with us one summer and wrote some code that we used for a number of years. And just a really uh, energetic, fascinating. And she wanted to be an astronaut. So, you know, you pat somebody on the head and say, mm -hmm. so, does, so does every kid, right? <laughs> so uh, um, 
so she graduated, and uh, a couple of years later, I was on leave at NASA Goddard, Goddard Space Flight Center for a, for a semester, and I bumped into her in the hall. So I sort of hadn't kept track of what happened. She got a job there um, building, um, working working on big teams, building um, spacecraft. This is up in Maryland, right? In Maryland, right. Yeah, yeah just outside, the, uh, near, near the University of Maryland. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, uh, so that was cool. We talked, um, and... Uh, so she wasn't an astronaut, so I thought, so all right. Uh, but then she would send me emails and say, you know, could you write me a letter of recommendation? I've, um, I'm, I'm trying for a position uh, in Antarctica. Well, it turns out what she had done, she heard that there was an opportunity that, that um, one of the support groups uh, that, that maintained scientific instruments at the South Pole needed a cryogenics expert. Well, she made herself a cryogenics expert in about 36 hours and uh, uh, brazened her way through the interview and got the job and wintered over in Antarctica. So I figured, well, can't go to space. Next best thing is to spend six months in the dark. So she did that. was a huge <laughs> success at that. Um, then so I'd get an update every couple of years. Then she was in Samoa. They finally gave her a posting that was a little warmer. Uh, she also worked in Greenland. Uh, and next I knew... You know, I heard this announcement that she was one of eight out of 4,000 applicants. So she made it. So I'm glad I didn't try to dissuade her too hard, try to talk too much reality into her because uh, she did it. You would be a part of her story. And, and, and I've, I've known students like that. And a surprising number of them, in my experience, have been females. Uh, not every female, but a surprising but males yeah, too. Yeah. But a surprising number. But it's sort of like you 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 realize at some point that what you do is get out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that's at least what I think. Oh, it's just a, it's a pleasure to be with some of. This is one of the great things about being in higher education. You right. just run into some fantastic people. So she, right. she was one of them. So I got to watch her spacewalk. So imagine. So sure, you practice on Earth, but all of a sudden, here you are. Uh, out in space in this bulky spacesuit, doing these things uh, with an audience of everybody on Earth who wants to watch. She had a camera on her own helmet, for God's sake, so they could so talk about being under pressure. Um, uh, so she did six or seven hours out there moving batteries around or whatever she did. Uh, and it was fascinating to watch. Oh, and the view is just absolutely, <laughs> it's fantastic. just absolutely fantastic. And. And so her name is Christine. Christina Cook. I think you should have her on a show when she's back. Yeah. Well, she's really I, good about it. If she would be willing to, that would be wonderful to talk to, to her about that. And and uh, uh, too bad she won't be back in a, in a couple of three weeks because we're going to have another one of the anniversaries. We're, we're on the down. We're in our last minute now, so I'm vamping a little bit. But uh, And thanks for the report on Christina. Absolutely. Uh, we'll have to keep an eye on her because she's—I think we can say she's one of ours. Uh, but— um, the uh, the uh, uh, oh I've forgotten what I was going to talk about now but in in any event uh, three the, weeks something coming up in three weeks oh, anniversary uh, the man on the moon absolutely the uh, moon landing you bet uh, that's another ni 1969 yeah. and if as if to maybe bring it to Earth or maybe take off Woodstock comes up in August <laughs> too so we've, we've got all kinds of interesting anniversaries coming up. One, in, yeah. Uh, 50th anniversaries. Our guest tonight has been Dr. Stephen Reynolds, who um, teaches in the physics department at NC State and uh, who has visited with us a number of times over the years. We've talked about black holes and the uh, Eddington experiment back in 1919 and uh, gravitational waves and 
Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I think Dr. Reynolds had said what was breaking news three years ago has kind of become old hat now. And There's dozens of these events. They, they, black holes are emerging all the all time, it, it turns st out. Stuff is happening all the time. Well, that's our program for tonight.